Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, again acknowledging that you are the Lord and Savior of our lives. We're so grateful, Lord, for the mothers that you have brought into each of our lives, which, of course, we are the result of the blessing uh, upon our mothers. And we're grateful for all of the women that you have blessed in this way down through the centuries, and particularly those that are here this morning. And I pray your special blessing upon each mother and grandmother and great-grandmother here today. And Father, we trust, and even as we will pray later more specifically, for those for whom this is a difficult day, we pray that you will minister uh, to them too. And Lord, we ask that you will guide us now in our study, that you will direct us as we focus our attention on the Word of God. And I ask, Lord, that wherever it is being proclaimed this morning, that your Spirit will be there in power and lives will be changed. We ask that you'll bless the service as it goes on now and the other Sunday school classes. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. If you'll turn to the 15th chapter of the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 15, I would like to read verses 1 through 3 and then verses 17 to 19. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving you, then make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow, or a free will offering, or in your appointed times, to make a soothing aroma to the Lord from the herd or from the flock. Then down in verses 17 to 19, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where I bring you, then it shall be that when you eat of the fruit of the land, you shall lift up an offering to the Lord. And in the verses in between, verses 4 through 16, we have a description of the sacrifices that are to be made, the animal sacrifices, the meal offerings, and the libations or the, or the drink offerings that were be, to be offered at the same time. Now, many Jewish and Christian scholars are rather disturbed at the seeming incongruity of chapter 15 with the context. We have studied in the previous several chapters the uh, account of Israel coming to Kadesh Barnea and there sending out the spies and, and then because of their refusal to go into the land in, in obedience to God, God brought upon them the, the punishment of the fact that none of those who were above 20 years of age would actually enter the land but would die off in the wilderness during the next 40 years or 38 and a half years, whatever how, uh, that all worked out to be. One commentator says about this chapter that chapter 15 begins as though nothing has happened. You know, it, it's just as if they hadn't spied out the land and decided they weren't going to go into the land, that they were going to rebel against God and that they were going to overthrow Moses and pick, up, pick a new leader and God set, comes on the scene and delivers his pronouncement relative to them. It, it's just as if none of that is there when you start with chapter 15 because as we read, uh, God said, to Moses, tell the sons of Israel that when you enter the land which you are to live, which I'm giving to you, this is what you are to do. Whoa, but we're not going to the land. <laughs> I mean, we're going to wander around the wilderness. Chapters 1 through 9 of the book of Numbers, as we studied them, are very similar. 
in that they are a preparation for the people. Uh, instructions on what the people are to do when they eventually get into the promised land, when they actually occupy Canaan. The occupation has now been put off for nearly 40 years. The mathematics of this is, is uh, you know, not really terribly important, but whether the 40 years constitutes the time they've already spent from the time they crossed the Red Sea to the moment they, uh, at Kadesh Barnea, and thus 40 years altogether, so which would mean only about 39 and 38 and a half years beyond that point, or whether it's an additional 40 years, that, that's uh, relatively in, unimportant here. But regardless of whether the occupation has been put off for 40 years or not, it is going to happen. They will enter the land because God has so ordained it to be. The commentator Ronald Allen makes this insight, gives this insight. He says, chapter 15 is another collection of texts designed to prepare the people for their life in the land. Hence, this chapter is one of promise, though a great deal has happened and the results are overwhelming for the adult population involved. Nonetheless, there is a sense in which we may say that nothing has happened because God has pardoned his people. We read about that in chapter 14, verse 20. The second generation will enter the land, as we're told in the 31st verse of that same chapter. So preparations still need to be made for that period after the conquest and the achieving of normalcy in the land. So what we're looking at is just a hiatus just a kind of a parenthetical period of time of 40 years in which they're wandering around. They just didn't go in when they originally had opportunity to. Instead, they will come in at a different time. This doesn't change any of the needs of occupation, any of the commandments of God, or, or uh, any of the directions that they need to have. In, in verse 2 of the passage we just read, and then down in verse 18 of this passage, we see the promise. It says when you enter the land. It doesn't say if you enter the land, it says when you enter the land. I mean, it's a given, it will happen. And in addition, in these two verses, we're also told how it will happen, just as it would have happened had they been obedient at that moment. And the how is that I am giving you the land, the Lord says. I will bring you there. That's how they're gonna get the land. God will take them in. No matter how great the forces arrayed against them, God will overcome because he is supreme. He is sovereign. And if he has chosen to do something, there is nothing in heaven or earth or hell or anywhere else that can stop him. Now, instructions concerning the whole series of offerings that Israel was to do, was, was to participate in as part of their worship of God the morning and the evening offerings, the sin offerings, the atonement offerings. This has primarily been described in the book of Leviticus. And we touched on some of that as we moved rather quickly through the book of Leviticus. The instructions that are given here in this chapter from verse 1 through 21 are basically dealing with thanksgiving offerings, special thanksgiving offerings the thanksgiving offerings that they were to give to God because he did give them the land. First fruit offerings that they were to make from the first harvests of the land. 
In other words, uh, uh, just a national and personal act of devotion and thanksgiving to God for what he has done for them. This, of course, is speaking into the future. It hasn't happened yet, but that's there to know what to do. H how are we to make this thanksgiving offering? And he describes it here in this passage, what is to be sacrificed and, and how it was to take place. Beginning in verse 22 of this passage, we read some very interesting information. Numbers 15:22. But when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, even all that the Lord has commanded you through Moses from the day when the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it shall be if it is done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation that all the congregation shall offer one bull for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its libation, that's the wine offering, according to the ordinance, and one male goat for a sin offering. Then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and they shall be forgiven. For it was an error, and they had, have brought their offering as an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their error. So all the congregation of the sons of Israel will be forgiven with the alien who sojourns among, among them, for it happened to all the people through error. Also, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off his guilt shall be upon him. It's a very important passage and very insightful in understanding how God deals with <laughs> sin. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. By obeying the law, you cannot be justified. And secondly, he says, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. And of course, Ephesians tells us that we cannot be justified by works, but only by faith. Now, God established the law as a perfect standard, knowing that fallen men and women could not keep it. Now, how would you like to live in a country where there was a government that passed laws that none of the people could keep? Well, all the people would be in jail, right, or whatever. Uh, would be the punishment, right? So that wouldn't seem like a very fair situation. But God passed or gave this law to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai for the people, a perfect law, which exhibited the, the personality of a perfect God, knowing that the people could not keep it. And its purpose was to demonstrate the holiness of God and to demonstrate our need for a Savior. That was its purpose. That's what Paul says there. The law has become our tutor, our teacher, 
to lead us to Christ. Because as we follow the law and as we know we're constantly breaking the law because as Christ said, if you break one part of the law, you've broken the whole thing. Because it's a matter of attitude. It's a matter of who we are inside. We are fallen, sinful people. Romans 3.23, which we often quote, tells us that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Meaning there is not one person born on this planet who can say, I have lived a good life and God must take me into his heaven because I've been such a good person all my life. No one can say that. Well, they can say it, but it doesn't mean he'll a bean. Because there isn't a person who's walked this earth who hasn't had an evil thought or said an evil word or done an evil thing. And not only that, the scripture tells us we're born in the sin of Adam. Where we have a proclivity to evil from the very beginning. And so, this passage, which we have read, it talks about unwitting failure, unintentional sin. This does not mean that I could go along during the day and I can go say, I'm so mad at this guy, I'm going to punch him out. Then I'm going to say, but that was unintentional. You know, <laughs> I, you know, it was an accident. I just kind of accidentally punched him out along the way, you know. <laughs> That's not what this is meaning at all. It's referring to the sin of the moment rather than a lifestyle committed to sin and disobedience. There is a big difference. You and I, if we have been born again by the Spirit of the living God, are still capable of sin. We can still get angry when we shouldn't. We can say something evil when we shouldn't. We can do something evil when we shouldn't. But the unborn again people are living a life of disobedience. I mean, they cannot really do what God defines as good. Oh, sure, they can define what the world calls good. You know, helping a little old lady across the street or a little old man across the street can be defined by the world as good. But that is not in God's eyes good unless the reason for doing it is to exalt Him. If we're doing it because we feel guilty or because we want a quarter from the little old lady or the little old man, then, then you know, that, that is not good. The world calls things good, which in God's eyes stink because of the reason it's done. Because God looks at the heart and not at the outside. God's not fooled. <laughs> we can walk along and you know, sing zippy-doo-doo-dah and act like we're a perfectly kind person while inside vile thoughts are running through our minds, you know. And God knows every thought before we even think those thoughts. So we can't fool him. So God is concerned about the difference between a sin of the moment and a lifestyle which is lived for sin and disobedience. For the sin of the moment, there is atonement. For the lifestyle of sin, there is no atonement. Most of us are familiar, as I quoted to you a moment ago, Romans 3.23. But the following verse goes, of course, very well with 3.23, which, let me read that one again. For all have sinned and, come and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift through his, by His grace through redemption in Jesus Christ. We all fall short of the glory of God but we are justified by the gift of the death of Christ, which brings us redemption. That gift is freely given. But as we have all, probably if you have grown up in the church, you are familiar with the fact that when, when you were trained to, to be an evangelist or whatever, you're told that, that you, you, you show a person that if you hold a gift in your hands, 
and that other person is over there, and you want to give that person the gift, that gift is not his until he takes it, you know, takes that gift. And so it is redemption with Jesus Christ. It's there, it's free, it's for all, but it's not the individuals until that individual receives that gift, takes that gift. We use the terminology in the evangelical world of, of accepting Christ. Now, out in the world, not everybody understands that kind of terminology, nor the idea of a personal Savior. A lot of terms we use within the evangelical realm which aren't understood out there in the world as we intend them to be understood. And, and so we have to you know, relate what this means for a person to become truly God's child. That person has to come to the place of recognizing, first of all, that they're lost, that they're condemned, that they're going to hell because they are disobedient to God. And then, once they recognize that, they must repent of it and say, God, I know I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Please change my life and bring Jesus Christ into my life that I might be transformed, that I might become a man or a woman of God. Now, the difference then becomes the difference we're talking about here. Uh, once that person is born again, any sin that is committed is a sin uh, that ranks in the first category. Unintentional uh, doesn't mean you didn't ex intend to do it, but it isn't the way you live your life. You don't live your life to, to, to do evil all the time. It's something you do and afterwards you're convicted in your heart and you say, oh God, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I think that? Cleanse me of that and, and you move on from there. It's, it's a daily situation of confessing our sin and trusting God for that cleansing. However, for those whose lifestyles are steeped in sin, and being steeped in sin, of course, doesn't mean the person who's dragging through the gutters drunk all the time and shooting heroin in their veins. Steeped in sin is anybody who is not born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. Be they Hindu, be they Muslim, be they you know, somebody who looks really wonderful, dresses up real neatly all the time, and doesn't kick his dog every morning. You know, that, that kind of a person may appear very good, but if he's not been born again, he's not right in God's eyes, and he's steeped in sin. Because, you know, what was Satan's problem? His problem was, he said, I want to be like the Most High. And that's been the problem of the human race ever since. You know, we arrogate ourselves to the place of determining that we, are right. And God has to take us the way we are. You know, God, if he doesn't like it, he can just lump it. Well, see, that kind of an attitude is the attitude that most people have. They may not voice it, they may not make it obvious, but the fact that they don't give God a minute of their day makes it quite clear. As one uh, friend of mine in the past said, people vote with their feet. You know, they may talk all they like about how good they are and how much they like God, but they vote with their feet. Where are they? Where are they when God needs them and God wants them? If they're not where he wants them to be, then, hey, they're making their own choice. They're walking their own life in disobedience. And the scripture says there is no atonement for them. No atonement. They will be cut off. Now, when the scripture says cut off, it doesn't just mean excommunicated. You know, you're going to have to go out and live somewhere else. Cut off means cut off. You know, means dead. They are to be executed. And we'll be reading about that in the, in the very next passage. They would bear their sin into the grave.
These were those who were like the ten spies who led Israel in blasphemy by rejecting the clear word of God. He said, go into the land and I will give it to you. And they said, no, we can't do it and we won't do it. And therefore they blaspheme God by saying, you can't do it and you can't make us do it. God said, fine, you're just going to all drop dead out here in the desert over the next 40 years. And I'll take your kids in because they will do it. People such as this are described many places in Scripture, but there's a couple of passages I'd like to read which are rather blunt about this. Jude. The book of Jude is immediately before the book of Revelation and uh, have a hard time calling Jude a book since it's only 25 verses long. Letter is what it's called, so let's call it the letter of Jude, the epistle of Jude. In verse 12, we read this. This is, is speaking about men, and, and by implication, of course, women too, who are in the church, but are living lives of sin and disobedience have never been born again. It says, these men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feast, your agape, the, the uh, potluck communion that was common of the early church. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars, planetos, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Now there are those who come along will try to say to you, in fact we heard this, at least my wife heard it, on the television by one of the pastors in this town. And the pastor, in effect, said, there isn't really a hell. God would never do that because he's a God of love. And, and this guy, who's theoretically a Protestant, went on to basically preach purgatory. You know, that there will be the second chance, except for those who were just totally vile, like Adolf Hitler. You know, obviously, they, they would, they'll be cremated or something will happen to them. But uh, everybody else, uh, you know, they just are kind of erring children in this life and they'll get a kind of a second chance in the, in the next life. Well, if you can find that in this book, you're not reading the same book I'm reading. The Bible makes it very clear. You choose in this life whom you will serve, as Joshua said to Israel. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God allows us to make the choice. You choose to serve him or you choose not to serve him. That's your choice, my choice. But if we choose not to serve him, then we choose to throw our lot in with Satan, who has been condemned to eternal damnation in what the scripture clearly calls, and Jesus over and over talked about, hell. And hell's not a figment of the imagination or just a verbal, you know, something to scare people. It's referred to in the book of Revelation as the lake of fire, ultimately. Whatever all that means, I don't think we can fully understand, but it won't be pleasant. That is for certain. Galatians chapter 5 draws a very stark contrast. Galatians chapter 5 gives one of the most frequently quoted passages because part of it is the fruit of the Spirit passage. Galatians 5, beginning at verse 19. Paul says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident meaning they're obvious, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, 
enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice, that means for those for whom this is a lifestyle, this is how they live every day, such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, period. Not in a next life, not in a second time around, you know, not in some kind of purgatory. If this is how they live this life, they will not inherit the kingdom of God, period, ever. But the fruit of the Spirit for the person who has given himself or herself to the living God, the fruit of the Spirit, just, just as Paul preached last Sunday morning about the Spirit of God comes into the life of the believer and through the years that we walk with Him, this fruit of the Spirit begins to mature in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, but in the world, they look at that and they say, mush, a bunch of milk toasts. You live your life with love and joy and peace and patience. Hey, you know, where's the tough stuff of life? Well, that's a totally, you know, <laughs> ignorant view of what all of this means. Love is not mush. And joy is not going around, you know, in some kind of a tingly little high all the time. You know, it's the deep stuff of life. The song says, peace like a river flows through our lives. Patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And that terrible word, self-control. <laughs> against such there is no law now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires that means that you and I reckon it to be dead now the problem is it keeps crawling back you know but but this is our desire and then verse 25 says if we live by the Spirit that's a positional statement meaning you have been born again by Jesus Christ you are God's child then you are living by the Spirit. That's a positional thing. That, that's a real statement. But we are then to let us also walk by the Spirit. That is to live it out in our daily lives. It's to be experiential, not just positional. You know, the problem with many who, when they're first born again, if they are not in an environment where they are nurtured in the faith, they are positionally born again but their daily walk, their daily life is, is not growing in Christ, is not expressing the fruit of, of God's presence because there are, it's like a plant you put in the ground and you don't give it enough water and it just sits there and you keep enough water on it so it doesn't quite die, but it just doesn't do anything because it's not being nurtured. That's why it's so important for a person who, who comes into the kingdom of God who is born again. And that's why, you know, Billy Graham in his, in his crusades always tries to make sure there is follow-up on these people who come forward because you come forward and you make a commitment and you go out and you don't get attached to any body of believers. You just kind of float around, banging around, and, and uh, there, there's no one to nurture, to help, to stimulate the growth of the person. Being born again is, is just like a baby being born into the world. A newborn baby born into the world <laughs> is helpless. And so a newborn Christian is pretty helpless at first until he or she is taught what it mean, what the truth really means. 
so that they understand what is true and what is false, what is raw, what is error, what is heresy out there. Not everybody who's born again immediately loses all the, the things in their lives that they don't like to have, you know. It's, it's a process. Sometimes it does. Sometimes they, all the bad stuff just seems to drop off, at least the obvious bad stuff. And, but for others, it's a long, slow process. Reading on in Numbers 15, verse 32. Now while the sons, this is uh, Numbers 15, 32. Now while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. The 31st chapter of Exodus where we read, For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall surely be put to death. Now we already talked about the reasons for the Sabbath and everything else, so we won't go back into that. The point here is today, Defiant disobedience of God, regardless of what the law happened to be. It just happens in this case. It was a, a Sabbath breaking that was occurring. Now the implication of verse 34 in this passage, where we read that they held this person in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. The implication is that this is the first recognized violation of the Sabbath law. And, and the Sabbath law says that you know, the one who, who violates the Sabbath law, Sabbath law shall, shall die. Well, what does that really mean? I mean, does God really mean die? And if so, how? How shall they die? And the consequences are pretty severe. And of course, if they just took this guy out and killed him, that would be setting a precedent. So they wanted to make sure that they were doing the right thing. And God does not in any way call them on the carpet for doing this. God does not challenge them for not doing anything with a guy, but coming to Moses and saying, now Moses, would you ask God what we're to do here? I mean, God had already said what to do, but they wanted to make sure, and, and God was, felt that was perfectly all right because of the precedent that would be set by this. Now, it doesn't say specifically that Moses asked God what to do here, but it's implied in verse 35 because God responds to the situation. And what does God do? He reaffirms what he meant by the fourth commandment and says that's exactly what I meant, exactly what I meant. Now God does this over and over and over again. Honest questions put to God receive patient and honest answers. God is not bothered by our quandary, by our questions, by the fact we don't really understand why something should be such a way. This, this doesn't bother him and he will patiently answer as he does over and over again. But God reaffirms that the man who has violated the Sabbath defiantly, as this man has, this man will die. And the whole congregation is to take part in the execution. Now, we, we need to understand um, the history of, of execution just briefly here. You go back to the mid Middle Ages, and they did public executions. But it wasn't so much for the idea that people will watch, witness the public execution and therefore they'll learn their lesson, but it was because it was the only thing exciting going on. You know? Life was pretty dull in those days. 
And people came out to watch the execution because this was a, a thrilling thing. You know, for people today, a lot of people talk about, oh man, you know, we don't ever want to uh, you know, let do this quietly. Let's don't even do it at all. You know, let's not have any public executions. Let's not even have any executions for crime. And yet, kids can sit and watch television. They can watch people being murdered. Not, of course, in reality, but nevertheless, to a child, it's real. For, for years, I mean, you've all read the statistics, you know, the typical child by the time they reach 18 have watched, witnessed, what, 25,000 murders on television or something like that. We, we live in a very strange society when it comes to some of this. But the purpose of, of doing this was solely, solely, so that the whole congregation will take responsibility for obedience, individually and corporately. And if you witness a person die for violating the law of God, you will think twice about doing it yourself, or maybe a whole lot more than twice. And it is definitely a deterrent, no matter what modern sociologists or lawyers would like to argue. This was to illustrate that God will not tolerate open defiance to his word or to his person. The man had not made a mistake. This was not unintentional sin, an unwitting failure on his part. It's clear by the context that this was not it. Because it says in that passage, let's see, brought Moses to the congregation, the man gathering wood. Well, it doesn't say it specifically. It's implied. It goes back up to verse 30 where it says, who does anything defiantly? And then this illustration is giving. So it implies that this man was doing it defiantly. In effect, he was shaking his fist at God and saying, I'm going to do whatever I want regardless of what your law is. The commentator Delich tells us that this was an illustration of a man sinning with a high hand. In fact, the word defiantly literally translated from Hebrew means high hand. You know, high hand is, you know, the fist in the face of God, in effect. Now, we have to understand that you all heard of stories of people who stood out in the corner and said, if there is a God, I dare him to strike me dead at this moment. And of course, the guy doesn't get struck dead because God's not particularly intimidated, uh, you know, by this person. <laughs> and God is patient. And God is merciful. And, 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 and God will bide his time. But in this case, this man is leading all of Israel, in effect by his example, to destruction. God will not have it. God loves his people too much to let that happen. There is another incident which we read before in Leviticus chapter 24 of a public execution of a man who had violated the law of God. You remember the man who was half Israelite, half Egyptian, and he went out and he fought with another man, and then he cursed God before everybody, and, and God said he must die. It wasn't because, you know, God was hurt by his words. It was because he was an example of a man who, who would publicly defy. I mean, everything has to do with public here. Public defamation of the name of God is treated by God differently from private. And that is because God doesn't want to see others led to destruction because of an example of someone else. You know, as we read last week or the week before, you know, woe be to the person who leads a young child to down the road of destruction. It says better he had had a millstone tied around his neck and he was dumped in the ocean rather than that he allow that would be responsible for leading a child. And that could be mean a physical child or a, a, a spiritual child, someone who's newly born again and gets led astray by some heretic. It would be better if he was dead 
than that he would do that. In obedience to God's word, the people took the Sabbath breaker outside the camp and they stoned him to death. Now you can imagine stoning is probably not the most um, gentle means of uh, execution. But it was witnessed by many and known by all. I'm sure they didn't have all the little children right out there in the front showing them being stoned. But, but the children would hear, would hear. And, and they would know as the adults knew that this is a powerful warning against defying the sovereign God. It seems harsh, but in reality, the death of this man was an example of God's mercy. You might say mercy? Yeah, mercy. Mercy on his people, because if he let this man get off, I mean, it's like our laws today. Somebody does something, we go, don't do it again. And they go out there and do it all over again, only worse. If God had treated this man easily, then others would say, big deal. I can do whatever I want, and God won't do anything to me. And we might say, well, you know what is really the big deal? The big deal is that God knows the heart of the person. And the scripture says, for he is not willing that any should perish. And God has set two paths before all persons. The broad path that leads to destruction and the narrow path that leads to eternal life. We choose. But God wants us on the narrow path. He doesn't want anybody to die, but he's not going to force anybody to go his way. And so if he treats sin lightly, then others will say sin's no big deal. And they'll all end up on the broad road and go to hell. He doesn't want that to happen, so he treats sin harshly so people will wake up and go the right way. Eternal life is so much more important to God than this life. And it is to us, too, because we're here for, what, three score and ten by reason of strength, four score, and, and nowadays even more than that some. But no matter if we live to be ten years old or 110 years old, it's a snap of your finger in terms of time, and eternity is forever. Some people try to get around it by believing in reincarnation. You know, I'm going to come back again as something else. And I mean, there is not a whit of evidence to indicate reincarnation exists. And of course, the scripture clearly condemns the idea. Well, let me just read the, the next passage, and we'll probably have to finish it next week. Verse 37, this will take us to the end of the chapter. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, that they may put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot in order that you may remember to do all my commandments and to be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh your Elohim. I am the Lord your God. We have to understand this kind of a passage in its context. God was constantly giving to the people touchstones of faith. He, he gave them the whole tabernacle setup. And, and, and the Ark of the Covenant and all these different things, which in and of themselves did not bring salvation. Hanging a tassel on your garment isn't going to bring salvation. You know, you, it, it's kind of like people who believe by having some kind of a holy handkerchief or a holy water or something else, this is going to make something different in your life. 
Well, it will if you have faith in the God who is, who's supposed to be behind this. But the actual water dipped in the little bowl over there, or a shawl with tassels hanging from the corner, isn't going to make you God's person. That's why you and I don't have to run around with prayer shawls hanging on our heads with little tassels hanging off of it, you know. Because that doesn't change your life. It's, as the scripture said, it's a reminder. When you see it, you think of God. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must Christ be lifted up. And he made that bronze serpent up there. Why? Not because that bronze serpent, serpent saved anybody. It was because by faith they looked. Look and live. By looking, they believed in God. And that's what saved them. Later on, they, they had to destroy the bronze because people were worshiping this silly thing. I think that's why the Ark of Covenant, if it still exists, hasn't been found yet because people go around worshiping the box rather than the God of the box, you know? And so I think uh, we'll, we'll look at this a little bit more next week, but I think this is an important illustration of the fact that it's purely for a reminder purpose and it's not something that we need to look back to and say, oh my goodness, I should be wearing a tassel on my shirt or something, you know? Mm -hmm.